Leap to Fame. Leap to Fame corners with a nice lead. He's out in front by six metres. Deus Ex can't find a better man. Narano running on down the outside, but it's Leap to Fame. Give us a flex, Larry. Leap to Fame. Oh, he folded in one easily. 27-3, they corner now, less than 200 metres to run, it's Swayze in front, Leap the Fame chasing him down on the outside, Swayze in front, Leap the Fame can't pick him up, Hot and Treacherous deeper, Swayze in front, and Swayze scores, Swayze beats Leap the Fame. Durano hard forcing into the clear, comes off cover, he's got something to offer as well, speak the truth, Spirit of St. Louis, Durano is starting to fly, Spirit of St. Louis, Durano, Spirit of St. Louis, Durano, Durano. The Inner Dominion final tomorrow night at Albion Park, it's going to be a cracker. We've spoken all about the horses, Swayze, younger brother, younger half-brother leap to fame. And, of course, we see the star square gator just believe in the trotting final. But what about the guy that calls all this action, the eye in the sky, so to speak? I've been meaning to catch up with Chris Barsby for a while and profile his career and find out what he did in the early days and how he got involved in race calling. Are his family involved in the racing industry in some capacity? I know wife Kylie uh, is very passionate about standard bred racing. Chris Barsby is joining me. How are you, Chris? Steve, I'm well. Good morning to you. Good morning, everyone. Well, let's start right from the beginning. You were born at Redcliffe, north of Brisbane. Uh, yeah, correct, Steve. So um, not far from where I call now, actually. So it's just basically across the road from the Reckliff Harness Racing Track. So born and bred in Reckliff, spent probably the first uh, 10 years of my life uh, in the Reckliff area before just moving uh, not far from Reckliff, but uh, yep, definitely born and bred in Reckliff. Given you live so close, were you often over at the track in those days or not really? Uh, yes and no. I remember my first house that uh, I lived in with my parents. Uh, it wasn't all that far. So much so, it was right near the uh, the, the Redcliffe Aquatic Centre. And at night, uh, when they used to race at night, you could see the lights of the track. And I suppose from a young age, Steve, that sort of captivated me because just from our balcony, you could see the lights in the background and you're always inquisitive thinking, what's all that action over there? So... I suppose, uh, yeah, it wasn't far from the track, and uh, it, it, it got me it got me going from a very young age. Probably hear the dulcet tones of Terry Sparko on the public address system back then. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, that would have been, yeah, a fair while ago now. Uh, we're talking early 80s, so, um, yeah, back then, uh, you know, um, there was a lot of racing, and... Um, yeah, it wasn't far from home, so it was it was nice and close. As we've spoken about, hasn't that area just exploded in the past 10, 15 years, Redcliffe, Chris? Well, just to prove that point, Steve, I, I know now where, where my first house was. Uh, it was bulldozed a fair time ago, and I think there's probably, you know, a 20-unit block there, uh, you know, on that same parcel of land where I grew up. So, um, yeah, it's exploded in and around that area. So many high-rises, so many high-rise apartments. So uh, it's a lot different to, to back then in the day. What about your mum and dad and their involvement or family members in racing in general, whether it be thoroughbreds or standardbreds? Um, yeah, mum's side of the family had some some horses early. I don't think there was any great success uh, w with their side of the, 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 the horses Um I think they had a couple of handy ones, but I suppose that's where where the bug started from. There was always that sort of link to the horses, um, but growing up, um, you know, as much as you wanted to get to the track, and it was probably 
later in life for me, um, you know, once you become a teenager, you start taking more of an interest and I was able to get to the track. But as a youngster, um, it was all about sport for me. So um, the, the racing at that stage, um, whilst it was there, it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. A lot of us all grew up with the, the, what was called the wireless or the radio back then on the racing station. And I, I grew up listening to that every Saturday and Dad sitting around the kitchen table. Was was there races on in the household during that period, Chris, in the early days at any stage? Yeah, it's a good point you raise because... Being from a, a really strong um, sporting family, my, my father's side, um, you know, heavily involved in, in sport, you know, cricket, uh, field hockey. Um, so every weekend, whether it be winter or, or summer, Steve, there was always that, uh, that sound... Uh, that sound of the radio, like you said, the, the wireless. Um, you, you'd be at the sport, and the guys that were playing, the, the, the senior players, the, the, the men, uh, they were always keen, having a bet, having a smoke back then, having a drink, and you would always hear that soundtrack of the races going in the background. And again, that was another pivotal moment for me. Like um, hearing Wayne Wilson on the radio uh, was just music to my ears in so many ways. So, yeah, the, the radio was always on, in particular, every Saturday afternoon. I'm keen to talk about, because I understand you're a very good hockey player in your younger day, but I've often said on this program, Chris, I believe it's in the DNA with these with gifted broadcasters like yourself. Uh, you know, you just wonder, does it, how far does it trace back? And what I'm talking about is being able to memorise colours, get them in your head. It, it is something that not the average person can do. So I'm, I'm, it's in the DNA. So whether there was a member of your family in the past that had this wonderful recollection that never got to, you know, uh, be involved in race calling, so to speak. But I'm pretty certain of that. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I understand where you're going with that line of thinking. Um, as far as I know, I don't think there was any uh, direct link for me. Um, one thing, and I'm, I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed to say, but as a as a teenager, uh, rather than singing in the shower, I used to call races in the shower, and that's where I sort of developed, um, you know, in, in some ways the basic skills of racing because you'd stand under the water, no one's around you, and you could just go and do what you need to do. And I had some great race calls back then. You know, you'd pick out all the great names of, of racing and you'd just, you know, give it a go. So I'm not much of a singer, I can tell you that, but uh, that that's probably where I got, got going in, in life with race calling, just standing under the shower and, and, and building out all these names. Names of thoroughbreds or standard breads at the time that you knew? Uh, just depends, Steve. Just both, really. Um, I'd probably say more harness, but... Um, depending on what was happening at the time with the thoroughbred world, uh, I wouldn't be against calling a couple of thoroughbreds as well. Tell me about when you played sport in the early days and, and you represented Queensland, something I was unaware of, in hockey, Chris. Yeah, that's right, Steve. So, um, as I said, uh, from a, a really strong sporting sort of family, um, my parents, uh, they separated when I was about nine and most weekdays or all weekdays always spent with mum and then the weekends were always spent with dad and uh, all weekends were always sports so like I said in winter it was field hockey and then in in summer we were playing cricket and you know we went everywhere played a lot of sport and and hockey was one that um, that you know I enjoyed playing uh, team environment um Got, got better as I was getting older, uh, made a lot of rep teams, made the state side, like you said. Uh, that was when I was 15. So um, I really enjoyed it. Got to play alongside a guy by the name of Jamie Dwyer, who's 
from Rockhampton and probably one of our greatest Olympians of all time. He, he made four Olympics, so um, had some great memories, played with some great guys and um, enjoyed that. Probably enjoyed hockey more than cricket. Still enjoyed cricket, but I thought I was just probably a little more skilled at hockey than what I was at cricket. How many whacks to the shins did you get? <laughs> yeah, quite a few, quite a few. But I, I enjoy competition, Steve. So you, you sort of get that little bit of white line fever and, um, you know, I enjoyed it. I was lucky enough to travel, you know, uh, all over the all over the state, really. Went to a lot of different carnivals, a lot of different tournaments, and um, I enjoyed every second of it. Um, but there was a change that came along... Oh, probably when I was about 13, I was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. So in many ways, that really changed um, the outlook on life for me. Um, as I said, I made the stateside when I was 15, could have kept going down that path, but maybe I was just sort of thinking with this condition, um, I've just got to sort of look for a, a safer option. So uh, this is probably in the early to mid 90s, so uh, things Things changed fairly considerably back then for me. Did the symptoms, re the diabetes, come on very quickly? And this all, you've got type 1 diabetes, and it's all to do with the pancreas not uh, producing insulin, Chris? Yep, that's right, Steve. So um, just at that age, and I suppose, I wouldn't say misdiagnosed early, but just slow to pick up on it because there was no real link to any family history with it. So... I was going through that uh, that stage of puberty, you could say, and uh, I was eating a lot more, I was very tired a lot more, and then things just sort of, you know, reached a point where I had to get some test done, and then uh, before long, uh, I was I was uh, whisked off to, uh, to hospital, uh, spent about a week in hospital at the Wesley, and uh, diagnosed as a type 1 diabetes, uh, type 1 diabetic, so four injections per day, minimum, and that's been the norm for me since since I was 13. So it's a battle, there's no question, but the flip side is you've got to be positive and, um, you know, you've just got to take it uh, every day as it comes and there's a lot, lot more people worse off than what I am. But it's something that you've just got to deal with day in, day yeah. out. It's, there's no cure for it, but as a, as a youngster giving yourself needles, uh, how hard, I mean, mentally to do this and what time of day do you have to give yourself these injections? Chris, and I, I often hear you hear your little alarm go off. People may not notice that listen to us, but I often hear your little alarm go off when we're chatting on air. So to, just to remind you to give yourself the injection. So how many, per, what time of day are we talking when you, when you do this? I'll say on average, Steve, I'll have one in the morning, one at lunchtime, uh, one before dinner, so say around six o'clock, six thirty, and then one just before bed, which will keep me going overnight. That's a long-lasting insulin that I take, so that's a different type of insulin compared to the other three injections that I take during the day. And depending on how my levels are during the day, I might need a bit more of the the fast-acting stuff. So, like I said, it, it, it's a battle. Um, but you know, and, and back then when I was in the Wesley Hospital, first diagnosed as a diabetic. I was practicing giving myself needles um, but by using oranges and, and, and pieces of fruit. It was so foreign and it was so daunting. But as I said, you've got to learn to live with it and, and you've got to get on with the show. And a, a role model for me back then was Steve Renouf, the, uh, the footballer for the Brisbane Broncos. Um, he was diagnosed as a, a type 1 diabetic. So he was an inspiration back then because he was a, a sporting star and I was still playing uh, a lot of sport. He gave me a lot of hope, so um, but a lot of trial er and error, and that continues to this day. So that little machine that you mentioned, so 
just recently. Uh, it's called a Dexcom. So I've got a continuous blood glucose monitor on my body at all times. So when I start to, to dip and get a little bit too low, it'll send off an alarm, which will sort of notify me that I've got to take a little bit of care of myself. So a lot of trial and error, a lot of frustration, but, um, you know, we're here, we're upright, and uh, you've just got to make the most of it. The average injection, how much goes in, Chris? Insulin? Uh, it varies, Steve, just depending on my levels. Um, I've got a set sort of level that I have for my uh, injections per day, um, but it all depends what I'm doing, uh, how active I've been, how uh, inactive I've been. So it sort of varies time to time. So I wouldn't say it's the same all the time. So it all depends on how the body is at that moment in time. Have you ever, what happens if you don't take it, Chris? Uh, and how long do the effects start to come on? Um, basically, when, when, when I start going into a, a hypoglycemic attack, I'll, I'll start to, to sweat, get the shakes, become a little bit blurried uh, with my vision. So it, it's not the best feeling. Um, so now that I've got this monitor, and that's been with me now for about 18 months, so I've been slow and I don't have the pumps. I've been spoken to by many specialists about getting pumps and, you know, having that sort of control all the time. But I'm a little old school and I sort of stick with the, uh, the insulin injections myself. So with this monitor that I've got on, that was forced because of a couple of seizures that I took uh, and, and the, the bad one that I had that forced me to get this uh, monitor, um, you know, I ended up in the, on the floor uh, in, in my bathroom, uh, no recollection of it, wake up so body sore because, you know, you, you go into that sort of convulsive attack. But, you know, since I've had this machine, and as I said, it's on my body all the time, I'm a lot better. So my control's a lot better. I wouldn't say I've been a role model, um, like anyone, you like a good time, but um, I'm I'm pretty good overall, and I think I'm 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 a lot better. How long now. ago was that attack where you ended up in the bathroom? Oh, that was probably about two years ago, Steve. Mm. So I've had some bad ones, um, but um, that that was the catalyst for me to sort of take a more uh, stronger approach with my uh, my way of thinking with the diabetes and having kids now. You you sort of want to you know, be around to see them grow up. So I, I took on this uh, option of getting this uh, blood glucose monitor that's attached to my body. So it's been a godsend uh, and it's been a lot a lot kinder for Kylie as well um, because she doesn't have to worry as much. Yeah, she's been such a rock for you. I want to talk about Kylie in a moment and her involved, involvement in harness racing over the years. But just with that monitor, just a battery-powered thing, is it, Chris? Um, yeah. So obviously you've got to be aware of the batteries as well, uh, going flat and so on. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like a phone, Steve. Can you you can like, charge it, can you? Yeah, yeah okay. so you charge it all the time. Once a day, you make sure it's charged so you've got some uh, battery life there because um, you don't want to go in flat because that's only going to lead to problems. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, if it, a nifty little device, and uh, like as I said, it's been a godsend. Yeah, but you didn't have that device when you were first diagnosed, of course. As you nah. said, there's no cure, but there's been good advancements along the way. So back in the old days, Steve, I used to do the, the, the finger pricking all the time. So you'd do, you know, multiple tests of those every day. You just want to see where you're at. So um, the, the, the fingers were, were, were copying a hammering in the end. So uh, now that uh, I've got this continuous uh, blood glucose monitor, the, the fingers have got a reprieve now. So uh, they, they've come back to a little bit of normality. But the tips of my fingers were, uh, were pretty uh, sore and sorry there at one point. You just wonder, don't you, Chris? You said there's no family history. Uh, no doubt you've Googled everything, researched everything and wondering, you know, why me? Why did I end up with this? 
Yeah, um, that, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I, I suppose there were times, and still to this day, you get frustrated by it um, because it's sort of, in, in a way, slowing you down from, you know, being that normal sort of person. And I suppose I still am. But, yeah, it's just one of those things, you know, it, you know, why me? But it is what it is, and you've just got to deal with it. So maybe I was chosen to be this way, so... Um, I haven't sort of stopped living my life in any way, shape or form. So, um, yeah, it's one of those things, glass half full, you, you can have a, a look both ways, but um, it doesn't really bother me now. Just general life, lifestyle, um, you know, restrictions, uh, certain things you can't eat or you can eat and, you know, you, you get, can you have a steak and a beer and all that sort of stuff, Chris? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much um, food-wise I'm pretty good. Uh, there's no real restrictions. One of the, uh, the the side effects of diabetes that was picked up for me um, was the, the, the gluten intolerance. So uh, I think that ties in with the diabetes that, you know, you, you've got that celiac uh, uh, part in the system now. So that's linked to diabetes as well. So there's probably quite a few diabetics out there that have that gluten intolerance so for me i've got to be careful with the beers i don't have too many beers or if i do i've got to look for the gluten-free options and i i I eat pretty well um i I try to eat fairly cleanly i don't get into the uh you know the burgers or anything like that because of the uh the gluten intolerance so try to eat pretty cleanly and um i think i'm doing a fairly good job is it expensive insulin yeah yeah absolutely really yeah yeah any sort of medication nowadays, Steve's uh, getting expensive, but um, but in yeah. your case, it's a it's a necessity, necessity, Chris, isn't it? It's um, yeah. Well, without it, I'm not here, Steve. So that's the bottom line. Yeah, I didn't realise it was really expensive. Mm. Yeah. So. Mm. so, Chris, have you ever had an episode during a race or anything like that? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, had a really bad one at Redcliffe. That would have been ooh, probably in the last. 10 years, I reckon. So what happened uh, that particular day or night? I just probably running the gauntlet a little too strongly there, Steve, and um, just got too low with my uh, blood sugar and uh, as a result started to to drop into that, um, you know, uh, hypoglycemic attack. So um, levels just went really low, uh, lacking sort of, um, uh, you know, just... Uh, sense really like blurred vision um a speech became very slow this is during so, a race yeah absolutely yeah what so, part of the race was it and how did you get through it well i wouldn't say i got through it i i, I sort of mumbled my way through it but um it, it was scary there, there's no doubt about it so um uh luckily enough there's there's quite a few people that know me now at at the races and uh, they they quickly worked out that you know i was in a bit of trouble so uh, I think it was one of the, the patrons there that rushed up a can of Coke for me. So And that fixed just, you, did it, Chris? Well, it, it certainly helped. Uh, I had to take a seat there for a little while and, uh, you know, compose myself. But, um, yeah, just, just needed that sugar fix and um, I got it. And uh, by the next race, I was back on my feet and calling. And if you hadn't missed that previous race where I took the attack, you wouldn't have known any difference, Steve. So bounce back with, with vengeance for the next call and uh, bright as a button, sharp as a tack. But um, the race in which I had the episode, um, yeah, it was it was pretty ordinary, pretty horrible listening. And I, I had a similar situation at Albion Park probably just in the last couple of years. And, you know, that, that basically just comes back to myself, just, as I said, running the gauntlet a little too far, um, probably having an, uh, an injection and then not eating in 
you know, the space of time that I should have just to keep my levels up and, and keep me at a healthy level. But so, did you hear your alarm going off in that recent episode in Brisbane, Chris? I, I didn't have the alarm back then, Steve. Okay. So that was part of the reason why um, I insisted on getting the alarm so um, I could sort of um, shortcut any of those sort of episodes. So um, that was one of the big catalysts. And like I said, waking up on the, on the floor in the bathroom without any sort of recollection of it was the other major reason. So I can't imagine then, how scary that would be, Chris. It'd be like me hosting this radio program and something happening because it's all live, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think I had someone in the box with me and they were oblivious to the fact that I was a diabetic and what I was going through. And um, I'm pretty sure they, they got the, the shock of their life as well because um, you, you just start sweating profusely. You've got no control over it. And, and you need that, that sugar fix. So uh, luckily, um, I was able to get some assistance pretty quick. And like I said, you wouldn't have known come the next race. Yeah, you think with advancements, Chris, hopefully in the next five, ten years, they can come up with something, um, you know, better than the insulin at the moment. We'll just wait and see on that. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's a tough one. Um, you know, like, I don't think I'm going to see any sort of cure in my lifetime. I'm hopeful, but um, I just come to the realisation that... Um, I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll get that sort of liberty. But um, anyway, we move on yeah. and, um, you know, you just got to keep going. So I've had, I've had some close calls, but um, luckily I've been able to uh, come out on the right side mm. of it. Chris, do you remember the first race meeting you ever attended? Ooh. Um, can't say I can. Um, if it was thoroughbreds or a trot meeting, as we often it, talk it, about, I was at Redcliffe, uh, Rock Lee in my young youth days, teenage years, every Saturday. I would, I would say it would have been a Redcliffe harness meeting, given that I grew up in Redcliffe and it was so close. So, But I can't remember my, my first ever race meeting that I attended. But um, there's been a few, but um, it would have been a harness meeting for sure. Okay, so when did you make your mind up and say, okay, you're calling races in the shower, I want to be a race caller. How do you go about doing something like that or getting involved? What sort of steps did you have to take yourself and your parents at the time? Well, I, I sort of kept practising uh, just to myself uh, without ever doing any sort of uh, live practice calls. And then after a while, I thought, I've got to start getting serious. So by the time I was 15... I was, you know, fully engaged in the racing while still doing school and doing plenty of sport. But I just saw it as an option to, to, to go forward with my life, Steve. And then uh, I, I made some inquiries through uh, work experience. When you go to, to school in, in year 10, they say, oh, what do you want to do? And, you know, is there a possibility that you could, you know, go and try something that you want to look at uh, for your future? And I thought, maybe I could do something here with uh, the, the, the racing radio and, um, my mum was uh, able to make contact with Neville Bell, who made contact with Wayne Wilson, and then I, I got the opportunity to get do work experience there at Radio Tab. So that was probably in the mid '90s, and um, from there it sort of snowballed. Where I got asked to come back at the next set of school holidays, enjoyed it, came back for the next set of holidays, so on and so on, and then uh, ultimately ended up getting offered a, a, a part-time job there. And then that snowballed into a, a full-time position, and I've, I've been there ever since. Yeah, what were your roles in the early days when you started at Radio Tab, Chris? Just all for, the back. For TAB at the time? Just all the backroom stuff, Steve. You know, a fair bit of production, uh, making sure the lines were allocated. And it's a lot different 
now compared to what it was back then but just learning the ropes and um it it was fascinating uh sure i i I kept my eye on the prize about being a caller but it gave me the opportunity to start studying some of these guys that you know have become household names and and learning some of the tricks of the trade so it it was a good thing to to start at the very bottom work your way up and and learn some of the the great tricks from some of the great broadcasters that we've had i'm sure some of our listeners chris that like racing were like me you know you pretend to drive ride on the lounge and call try and call races off the tv and i could probably do a field of four or five um but when did you know were you calling other sports as well you just could remember colors and all that sort of stuff at that particular time knowing that this was your calling so to speak pardon the pun uh, yes and no, mainly just on the racing. Um, you know, you'd be focused, and I've got a real liking for the horse itself, so um, I respect what they do. So I was always captivated by the horse. So the thoroughbreds and the and the standard breads were always at the front of my mind. And like you, you'd stand in front of the TV, you'd practice calling, and then through that time when you start at the bottom you're able to get to to the racetrack and you'd you'd be able to talk to the callers and then you'd go down to the spare broadcast box not that we have many nowadays but back at the in the day at Albion Park they had that long hallway with all the press boxes so you could just go and hide up in there and and call into a tape recorder and you know, I went through that process for a long time. You'd do as many trial sessions as possible and uh, you just kept um, trying to improve. Uh, but the other thing that's really important is your voice. Like, you're either ready or you're not. And oh, I was probably a, a, a slow maturer, but um, I, I kept going and, um, you know, eventually uh, things started to, to turn around. But you're able to get those colours in your head, Chris, and that's what most yeah. of us can't do. You're able to do it. Like I'm talking about 12, 13, 14 runners in a race, in a yeah. thoroughbred race. You're able to get those into your, into your head and memorise them quickly. How long does that take, that process now? I mean, you'd know all these colours. Like, for example, in the Inner Dominion, you wouldn't even really have to, you know, you could just run up the steps at the last minute and call them, couldn't you? Because you, yeah, you're absolutely. so familiar with the colours. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some might say, oh, you're calling the same pool of horses all the time. Uh, And that's true in many ways, but I could do what you just said. You could just walk up the top of the stairs, you know, stand behind your your glasses, put the headset on, and and away we go. And, you know, that's just the way it is. It's sort of common nature for me now. It's second nature, and it's not that big a, a challenge, especially for the harness, because... I'm, I'm so deeply involved in, in, in that side of it. It would be completely different for me if I tried to do that at the gallops. I wouldn't be able to do that at the gallops. You'd need to, to study and, and practice, but um, uh, it, it, all, it, it all comes down to just experience and uh, doing it over and over again. So it probably gets a little easier as you get that experience into you. Is that something you'll explore in the future? I've heard you call a couple of gallops meetings in the past and you haven't missed a beat. We know Wayne Wilson cut his teeth in the trots and then moved to the thoroughbreds. David Fowler, likewise. Is that something you would explore in the future, Chris? Um, I don't know. I get off often asked this question, Steve. Oh, when are you coming over? When are you coming over? And just recently, Neville Bell, I caught up with Neville and he said, oh, the one that got away, we, we let you get away and you're still at the trots and you haven't come over to the to the thoroughbred side of thing. I, I did the trials for a long period of time, Steve, there in that Brisbane metro area, calling trials at Doomben, Eagle Farm and Deegan. I've been able to call thoroughbred races, um, you know, Sunshine Toowoomba. Coast, Gold Coast, Toowoomba, Ipswich, Mwoolumbar. I, I did a lot of meetings down there when guys like Michael Rod and Zach Purton were apprentices. Uh, but I've never called a race a race, a tab race, 
at either Doomban or Eagle Farm, despite the fact that I've probably done thousands of trials at both tracks. So um, yet to do one there at Doomban or Eagle Farm. So who knows, Steve? I enjoy harness racing. So at this point in time, um, I'm happy where you I am. You have a passion for it, absolutely. So take me back. You're working in the control room at the radio station. You were learning the trials. You were listening to Wayne Wilson. When did you get some decent opportunities? Tell us about the next step that you took. We were actually we were starting to hear your calls. Well, after I started doing a fair bit of the trial work with the with the harness, more so, uh, I was able to to branch out and, and do a bit of um, race day stuff with Wayne. So you'd go along to you know the tracks here in southeast Queensland, whether it be Doomben, Eagle Farm or Ipswich, um, you'd go along with Wayne and you'd just sit there, Steve, in the box with him and you'd watch and learn. You didn't, well, I, I didn't find I needed to ask a lot of questions with Wayne. you just watch and learn because he was so good at what he did and uh, you, you, you were just, you know, amazed by, by the talent that he had. So I love those days and I, I think back about them quite often, um, you know, having that opportunity to sit in the box with a guy like Wayne Wilson and then from Wayne it was David who took me under his wing and I was doing a lot more with the harness as well. So, And he's another one. Um, unbelievable talent, uh, David Fowler. And I don't think anyone's got a better understanding of the English language than what David Fowler does. And those two guys in particular have been so pivotal in my career. Um Wayne, just with his passion for racing, his sound is better than anything I've ever heard. He just had the, the, the perfect racing voice and he had that real dedication to it as well. And then, you know, David sort of just finessed that a little bit as well and, um, you know, put me on the right path. So those two guys, they've been enormous in my career. And, and with David as well, back in the day, uh, we had that little community TV station up here called Briz 31 and, and that was so crucial to my development as well, uh, working alongside David, doing live TV and uh, I think that's really held me in you know, good regard for, for the way I go about my business yeah, now. Yeah, I remember when Briz 31 started doing the, the harness racing yeah. uh, many years ago. Chris, 99 was your first race call. Where was that? That Which... was at Reckliffe. So, um, fittingly, um, the, the track that I was um, you know, at the place where I was born, uh, that's where I, I, I call my first race. Um, I can't even remember who, who won. I think it was a horse by the name of Cobbity something. It was a bad call, Steve. Like, you're <laughs> What's bad about you're, it? Oh, well, you, you, your voice is nowhere near what it should be. Um, you're so nervous. And that's the funny thing. Uh, you think you're ready and, and you've done all the, um, you know, work in lead up to, to getting this opportunity – but um, I look back now and I sort of half cringe thinking, oh, I wasn't ready for that. And like I said, I've been a, probably a, a bit of a slow maturing type, but um, I probably wasn't ready. But I got the opportunity. So that was 1999 and that was at Reckliffe. And by 2001, Steve, when the Inter-Dominion was held at Albion Park, the last time it was held prior to this year, I was doing the consolation. So it was a... A rapid rise for me, and um, it was yeah, it was it was steep, but it was great. And 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 David had full faith; he didn't need to give me that opportunity, but he had the faith that I'd be able to get the job done. And um, you know that that one was okay. I gave myself a pass mark there, but um, who yeah, won Dave, that one? Uh, that was Safe and Sound. It was a good yep. field that year. I think Safe and Sound might have beat twice. So, how many was... races you reckon you called up to that point Ooh. on air? So Wouldn't quite a few from 99. Yeah. Hard to tell, Steve. 
Hard to tell. Um, because back then Craig Wright was still there. He was still calling. So you might um, do one or two at a meeting and things like that. Yeah, yeah, like that was where David was able to give me the opportunity to do the last couple of races or maybe the first if he was coming across from the gallops because he was working the gallops during the day and then coming to the, the harness that night. So it wouldn't have been too many. Um, hard to quantify, really. Yeah, just with Wayne, can you remember a piece of advice that he passed on to you that's just stuck with you, Chris, and likewise David? Uh, for Wayne, don't blame your tools. Uh, just get the job done. So by that, he means don't blame your binoculars, don't blame weather conditions, just do your job. Um, and, and that resonates with me to this day. Um, David's always been, you know, be prepared, do your work. Um, another piece of advice I got from Marshall Dobson, who gave me my first chance on air, I, he used to have the World of Harness Racing, a, a weekly radio show, and he used to um, do this little uh, spot with me. It was like a trial file. He called me the track tout because I was doing all the trial <laughs> That's broadcasts. That's right, I remember that. Yeah. So I was doing all the trial broadcasts of trying to get to as many trial sessions as possible, and he gave me that opportunity to come on air. So that's that's where my first on-air opportunity came through, Marshall, and he was one that gave me a great piece of advice. And I tell my kids all the time, read. Read a lot, whether it's a magazine, a book, anything. But if you're going to read, read aloud. That way you're not taking any shortcuts. And that's a piece of advice that he gave me that's stuck with me and I'm now passing on to my kids. Yeah, Marshall, of course, was on the Sky Network. He used to wear the different colour bow ties all yeah. the time. And as you mentioned... Unbelievable talent. Yeah, he was on the sports scene program. I used to watch when they used to actually review the races on a Sunday. Chris, they used to have the the I think the, the treble legs back then. They used to show those at Albion Park, the greyhounds from the Gabba, and also the gallops as well. I thought it was fantastic. This is before the Sky, you know, we're just used to hearing them on the radio and we could watch them on Sunday. So we, yeah. a lot of us used to just tape it <laughs> and watch yeah. the replays back then. Yeah, well, his harness show on the radio, on Radio Tab back then, that was always must-listen-to sort of stuff. So um, it was huge to be part of it back then, back in that way, uh, in such a small way, but uh, that's where I got my first on-air opportunity. When you called Safe and Sound, you mentioned the consolation back in, in 2001, I think the year you said, that was in the magnificent broadcast box that I've actually been in plenty of times at Albion Park that Wayne actually designed. Um, but, of course, subsequent, Chris, you've been, you were calling in... Uh, a demountable situation, scaffolding type setup for many years, which only finished in recent times. Yeah, well, that's right. The Russians grandstand was condemned back in 2008. So as a result, uh, once the, the demolition took place of that Russians grandstand, we were confined to the, uh, the, the scaffold, which was meant to be temporary. It lasted, what, uh, 15 years. It was only earlier this year that we were able to move to this new broadcast vantage point that we've got now. So... Um, up until this year, my entire length of time as the, the premier harness caller in the state has been done from, um, a, 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 you know, a bit of scaffold and a, a builder's demountable hut. So it's um, a little bit different, a little bit unique in many ways, but uh, loving the new setup that we've got now. So in very, or in some small way, it sort of reminds me of the old Russians grandstand. Height's about the same and... Um, you're looking over the horses like you used to uh, when you're in that old broadcast box before it was um, uh, demolished. So it's it's got some sort of feeling about how it used to be. Um, it's it's a shame we don't have that the setup that we we once did there at Albion Park because walking into Albion Park in its full glory when you know there was Silks Restaurant, what 600 seat capacity uh, seafood restaurant there, and it was so busy, so popular that those glory days of Albion Park were just 
something that you'll never forget. Yeah, used to work up there with Terry in the early days and the callers uh, uh, used to walk down into the box and I used to ask, used to say to Terry, what are these other boxes here? They're the same. He said, well, that's when used to be in the Dominion finals and sometimes it'd all be full. <laughs> so mm. you'd have broadcasters from all over the nation, New Zealand yeah. as well, all different callers. It's just massive in those days, broadcasting networks all around the country. Yeah, special times, yeah. special times. Absolutely. So, Chris, um, the call that you're most proud of during your, your calling career, is there one in particular so far? Um, oh, probably the one that gets replayed the most, Steve's the Muscle Factory call. Um, the night he won that uh, APG Gold Bullion race at Albion Park, he was he was a dominant favourite. He was expected to win. He won the heat the week prior by a big space, and you know I thought oh, I can give this a bit of a, a run here, and um, I just went with something on the night, and it luckily stuck, and um, it came out the way it wanted to sound, and that's been one of my big things as a caller, um, not memorising the names or colours, but just getting it to come out the way you want it to sound like. So that was a, a battle for mine, and in many ways it still is nowadays. But the muscle factory call is probably the, the one that probably stands out the most, but hopefully um, I've still got plenty of good ones uh, still to come. Looking for separation, found at the margin, blows out to 25 metres, third quarter in 27.4. It's muscle factory, muscle factory at the home turn. He's a minute out in front, Miss Moneybags is second, better be caused third, don't call the fire brigade, call the paramedic, rivals are gasping, and it's resuscitation required. Muscle factory races away and scores easily. Yes, Chris, that's certainly one of my favourites as well. It's yeah, a... it was a good night that night. And um, when you've got a horse that's expected to win, and um, he certainly was that, um, you could probably just allow yourself to, you know, be a little bit more daring. And um, oh, I took full opportunity that night. And like I said, luckily it came out the, the right way. So um, that's probably one of the, the best calls. Calling at the Meadowlands, I was lucky enough to go over there in 2007, work alongside a guy like Sam McKee. I was over there for about oh, almost two months and uh, called at the Meadowlands. And that, that was a huge buzz because, um, you know, I've been a, a harness racing tragic for so long. So... The, the North American scene was something that captivated me. So to, to go over there and call it a track like that, the biggest track for harness racing in North America was huge. And probably one of the other things was getting on the Mighty Quinn uh, to come over from Perth uh, to compete during our Winter Carnival back in 2014. That was another huge thrill. I was so persistent with, uh, with Gary Hall Sr. To, to bring him over and... Um, in the end, I wore him down and he was able to get here. And he didn't disappoint. He had the three starts. He won won the two major ones, the Sunshine Sprint and the Blacks of Folk. And to, to, just to be part of that was something that, um, you know, I'll treasure for a long time. This Sam McKee, given your – you sent me uh, a couple of little notes here, Chris, that you, you went over there with him and I looked him up this morning and, of course, his most memorable caller, one of them, uh, he passed about six or seven years ago now, was uh, Always Be Mickey, ran 146 in 2016. Yeah, that was a then uh, world record, and uh, he he was phenomenal, Steve, in, in so many ways. He, he blew my mind uh, when I was able to go over there in, in 2007. I went back in 2011, and um, he he was just so good at what he did. He was he was a perfect sort of combination of of Wayne and and, and David for me, and that that's the way I, I sort of fondly remember Sam. He he, he passed in 2017 owing to a stroke, and he was still fairly young. He was only early 50s, but 
just an unbelievable caller, unbelievable person. There was no ego about Sam McKee. Uh, he was all business and um, just an unbelievable talent. So he was one, and, and still to this day, when I get a, a, a spare moment, I love just going through YouTube and finding any sort of clips of him calling because oh, I just think he was he was so good and so special. So it was sad when, when he passed and uh, he was taken way too soon. But just to work alongside him uh, and share that box with him, um, you know, at the Meadowlands back in 2007, that, that's something that I'll never forget. Yeah, apparently from Michigan, of course. Uh, and then he went to the Meadowlands at the end of the 1990s. But what made him so good? Because their style is so different. Sometimes I notice with you over the years, there's a, little, a few little Americanisms, if I can call them that, that creep in sometimes, you know, five in, five out. Out, that sort of stuff, Chris, and yeah. we're seeing a lot of the drivers, uh, American style, aren't we, in Australia now? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, back then for me, that, that, those Americanisms were sort of born out of, you know, listening to so many replays of Sam McKee. Ken Walkerton, who, who, who still calls up there, he was another one that uh, you're able to uh, pick his brain and just find out how he goes about it, but for Sam, it, it was just so easy, but it was probably the preparation that you didn't see which made him so good because he could just turn up. And uh, over there, Steve, they've got their um, production where they do a bit of TV, live TV that they do themselves on track. And then he'll go up to the to the box and call. And it just seemed so flawless the way he went about it. So, um, But he must have done so much uh, research and, 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 and work behind the scenes. But, um, yeah, he, he was just someone for me that was just so good at what he did so I, I was lucky and I, I count my blessings that I was able to sort of work alongside him and see him up close and how he went about it and he's called some of the great horses and the other thing that sort of creeps in with the Americanisms is the fact that you know we've seen so many of our Aussie people go up there um, good friends with the McCarthy family um, you know spent a lot of time with Andy up there in 2007 and then went back and, and spent a fair bit of time with him in 2011 and um it was just a way of sort of having that connection, I suppose. So that's where the Americanisms probably come through. Last week, I spoke to Peter Robel around this time and we reflected on his career. And he's got a very good relationship, Chris, with Blake Shin, who we get to see in Brisbane next weekend. But he said, Blake, is he so critical if he thinks he rode a horse badly? So often he'll ring Peter up late at night and he said, oh, watch this race. Uh, what could I have done better? And he's, and everyone regards him as one of the best in, in the country, you know, um, Blake Shin. But he's so critical of himself. He's such a perfectionist. And you're very similar, um, you know, even with some of your calls that we wouldn't even notice. But you go home and sometimes you play it around in your head that you could have done things better. In your opinion? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. My own worst critic and, you know, probably um, savage at times on myself, um, probably earlier in the time when, you know, I was trying to establish myself, I, I would be really hard on myself, like really hard, and I'd beat myself up, whether it was just a, a trip over a word, uh, if you get a photo wrong, um, that that's a cardinal sin in many, in many ways for a race caller, but... Um, yeah, no, I'm still very critical. Like, I called Reckliff yesterday. I thought I was lousy the way I called yesterday. Why so, do you say that? Oh, I just, I don't know, Steve. Maybe I've just got one eye on the prize for, for tomorrow night and I was just taking my eye off the ball, dropped my guard, and as a result, I just made some errors that I shouldn't have made. But, again, I'm making excuses, so as Wayne would say, just do your job, nobody cares, work harder. Yeah, so, but I'm making excuses for you at Elwyn Park. If you went the wrong way in a photo, calling for a demountable, but basically you didn't have much elevation at all for all those years and people watching wouldn't have a clue, Chris, would they? 
No, but, you know, for, for a perfectionist, you, you, you want to get it right. And, and that's what, you know, reputations are, are made on. You, you, you want to be right more than you're wrong. So I'm, I'm still very critical. Like I said, I was ordinary yesterday by my standards. Um, but I'm always seeking advice as well. And I'll reach out to a lot of people, uh, not only um, David, who's a, a great sounding board for me. I'll reach out to a lot of people, a lot of other callers around the country I've, I've been able to reach out to. Um, Dan Malecki's one that I reach out to. Uh, Terry McCauley I've, I've reached out to. Darren McCauley, who's got an unbelievable sound in his own way. I love listening to Darren McCauley. Bruce so, McAvaney you've spoken to. Yeah, absolutely. So th- there's always room for improvement. And I- I- if you don't think there's room for improvement, well, I think you're just fooling yourself. So um, y- you've got to keep trying to be better and not only with race calling, that's with me in life, with, with my diabetes and, and just being a, a, a husband, a father and all that sort of stuff. So th- there's always room for improvement. So um, with, with race calling being your profession, um, you're always trying to just be better. I even heard Dan Malecki last night, Chris. I've watched that, you know, with Greg Miles on the program and also uh, Matty Hill and a few other broadcasters. And, and Dan made the point, you know, how it changed from radio to TV. He said there were little mistakes you could make and get away with in the radio days. But now with television, everyone's watching and critiquing yeah. your calls constantly. Yeah, replays come up instantly, so um, you, you, you can't hide anymore, and uh, you, you've got to be you've got to be at the top of your game for each and every race, and um, you know whether it's a, a a lowly maiden race on a Thursday at Redcliffe or a free for all on a Saturday night at Albion Park, I I try and give it my best all the time because you never know who's watching or listening, so um, you, you've got to be at the top of your game all the time. And social media has changed a lot of things now. Yeah. Where you've got a lot of lounge room critics, Chris, that can say they're two bobs worth in an instant. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the other advice as well. You're not going to please everyone, um, and again, if you think you can, well, you're only fooling yourself. So it, it, it's tough, um, and more so now than what it's ever been because of those... Um, uh, you know, uh, technology improvements, if you want to call them that, with social media and the like, and uh, those replays being instantly available. Um, you, you've just got to be prepared to, to take the good with the bad. So it's uh, it's one of those things that, that keeps you on your toes and gives you that edge. So you just got to go about it and try and be as, as best as you can all the time. Tell me about this remarkable lady in your life, Chris, your wife, Kylie. You got married in 2010. She was involved. Of course, she was in the sulky for a period of time as well, family and horses. Uh, she was known as, as um, Kylie Aldens back then. Tell us about when you met Kylie and how that changed your life and the support that she provides you and the kids. Yeah, well, I uh, met Kylie through the races, obviously. So um, she's been involved in, in racing her whole life. Her parents uh, are still really active as far as racing is concerned. They breed a lot of horses, uh, a lot of standard breads and, and thoroughbreds as well. Any they've good had, ones? <laughs> um, yeah, they, they've had some nice ones. Um, City Rogue was an Australian derby winner. Um, so Kylie's dad raced him. Uh, Hot Shoe Shuffle, she was a great filly. She, she came across for a breeder's crown, but... Uh, she raced in a lot of the big New Zealand features as well, Oaks, Derby, Classics over there. So they've had some nice horses, a um, couple of nice uh, thoroughbreds as well. Probably before my time, the thoroughbreds, they've only been steady in recent times. But um, uh, they still actively, uh, you know, uh, support both codes. And um, um, it, I don't know, like it, she was working uh, for her own uh, stable, uh, doing a lot of driving for her own stable, but she also did a lot of work for, for John and Narelle McCarthy uh, back in the day as well. So she's very close with uh, Luke and Andy and, and Toddy, and uh, it was 
just through a couple of chance meetings that um, we're able to meet and things snowballed from there and um, we've been together now uh, probably about 18 years now and been married for 13 so um, but she's just unbelievably good um, at what she does Um, so supportive Uh, if I'm probably getting a little over the top she'll give me a little clip and just keep me in line and and with the diabetes as well um, there's times I I feel she knows my body better than what I do Um, I don't know if it's that um, sixth sense or that motherly sense but um, she, she'll pick up on something that I might be doing and she'll say oh are you sure you're right mm, I'm not so sure but um, she's been a godsend for me in, in so many ways both professionally and, and, and privately so uh, and we've got two young kids Chelsea and Bryce um, and you know I'm so incredibly proud of them and I think it's because of the way she's been able to um, you know, raise these these kids. It's it's testament to her about uh, how great she is. So I'll go on and on. She's a beautiful soul. There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, that's but, lovely um, you say that, Chris. Yeah, yeah it really so, is. And you need that, don't you? Uh, absolutely. You, yeah. you, you need to have that support system and you need to have that person in your corner. And, you know, there's times, like I said, where I think I might be right and she'll say, you're wrong, you're wrong. So it's not one-way traffic. She'll call it out if she sees it. So, yeah, but you, you need to have that support network. Yeah, of course, your son, Bryce, he looks like you, and we've seen him, you know, with the little binoculars and so on. Do you think he's got it, Chris? Do you think it's in his DNA to one day call? Well, I don't know, Steve. Um, he's still at a very young age. He's, he still does a, a fair bit of calling at home. He'll push his cars around and call, and he gets his race books, and he gets all the names out, and every Saturday he likes getting his best bets and doing his tips for all the... The Gallup meetings around the country. Oh, and he it's a like, dollar five job then that he'll call in the future, Chris. <laughs> well, the other thing that he's uh, big on at the moment, he's um, he's keen to drive. So I'm not sure if that's um, a good move. But uh, did you he, ever he, think he, about that yourself? Given Kylie was nah. doing it and the horses, no, 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 no. I was lucky enough to call Kylie winning a few races, which was a, a bit of a unique. Were you courting thing, her at the time? Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, that would have been sure, so. yeah. Well, <laughs> that would have been big calls. That yeah, was a well, brilliant uh, drive. Oh, yes and no. Um, I, I think I kept a fairly level head with that yeah. sort of stuff. So, um, Well, that's where your professionalism comes through, doesn't it? Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, that, that was something different. And, um, yeah, so he's big on, on, on sort of probably going down that path as well. So whether that happens, who knows? He's lucky at the moment. Like Plymouth Chubb's staying at his grandparents' place uh, for the end of Dominion. So he's around there talking to a guy like Peter Manning and he got to, to lead Plymouth Chubb yesterday. So he, he, he felt 10 foot tall and bulletproof. So he's going to turn up on Saturday night and he's got his outfit picked out and it sort of resembles the colours of Plymouth Chubb. So he's going to lead the cheer squad there for Plymouth Chubb. Lovely. Just in brothers and sisters, Chris, any of those? Yep, one of each. So Are um, they in racing? No. No, no, I'm the only one in, in racing, so um, they have their own sort of lives that they lead, but um, no real interest in, in like racing. like my family as well. My sister and yeah. brothers, or the two sisters and brother, a bit the same. You know, they, they watch the Melbourne Cup, but that's about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah it's interesting how it all it. goes, isn't it? Yeah, too right. Too yeah. right. So, But I wouldn't swap it. Oh, I've been very fortunate, Steve, and, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle as much as a, a profession, so 
Um, I wouldn't swap it, and like I said, hopefully that the best is still yet to come. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we often mention Trevor Barsby's related, uh, an outstanding cricketer. Are there any other, you know, very uh, other sports, you know, any players or sportsmen in the, in the family that have excelled? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Trevor's daughter Gemma, she she's part of the uh, the WBBL, so uh, and she's part of the Adelaide Strikers, and they've recently gone back to back with the uh, the Big Bash League for the women. So um, she she's very talented. Um, uh, Trevor's son Corey is also a very talented cricketer, um, and he's very good friends with uh, Mitch Swepson, who's uh, one of the the stars for the Brisbane Heat as well. So um, yeah, cricket's very strong in the family. There's no question about it. I was lucky enough to get to a lot of cricket grounds as a kid growing up, following Trevor. You know, like uh, he played a lot for Queensland, and uh, he was part of that historic um, Queensland victory when they first won the Shield. So I think that was ninety four, ninety five. So. That was special memories, so I've been to a lot of cricket grounds, I can tell you that, but um, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of incidents over the years, of course. We've got those tapes here where David Fowler, one night a possum jumped on him and another night a gentleman with a disability, of course, uh, somehow got up into the box and uh, basically, you know, was um, manhandling David during a, a race, but David got through it. Have you had anything like that? Any any incidents over the years, Chris, and all years of calling? Um... Nothing comes to mind. I think I've been fairly lucky. I do remember that incident with David um, when that person made his way into the box because I was sitting in the boxes as well. That was oh, in you the were old there? Box at, yeah, yeah. I was in the box uh, with David that night and that was in the old box at Albion Park, so in the old Russian's grandstand. So I was sort of tucked away in the corner and as you know, as you walk in, you go down those uh, two stairs and you're calling right there. So he walked straight in and made his way to David when I'm sort of tucked around in that little sort of alcove that was um, set up in that box. So, yeah, I remember that night well. But um, fortunately for me, I haven't had any such issues. Yeah. Look, it's lovely to talk to you this morning. Chris, you'll be with us later, of course, so previewing the big races with all your guests on, on mobile rolling. But before we go, we need an Inter-Dominion tip. I, like, Perth, my heart says leap to fame. I think your head may say Swayze. Um, so what have you come up with in the big final on the weekend? Well, exactly like you said, Steve, uh, I would like nothing more to be calling Leap to Fame, winning the Inter-Dominion Grand Final on Saturday night, but, you know, the head says Swayze, just with that barrier draw edge, is going to prove very hard to beat. He's got that victory over Leap to Fame earlier this year in the Blacks of Fake, and with that edge and barrier draw, it sort of swings me to, to his way, but oh, it'd give me a great deal of satisfaction to call a Queenslander winning and Inter-Dominion, and, and becoming only the second Queenslander to do that. We know Black's a fake, greatest Inter-Dominion champion of all time. He won it four times, and he's the only Queenslander to do it, so I'd love to call another Queenslander winning an Inter-Dominion. Chris, thanks for your time. Pleasure. I'll talk to you later. Chris Barsby, a profile interview this morning on Racing HQ.